0: Good morning everybody. Uh, It's great to be with you. Um, It's always such a blessing to be able to open God's Word together uh, with you all and uh, I'll introduce myself for guests who may not know me. Um, I'm not the pastor. Pastor Hobson and his family were able to get out of town for a little vacation. Uh, my name is Eli. I am a chaplain up the road at Langley, and my family and I have been a part of this church for a couple of years now. Uh, it's just such a blessing to be here with you um, every Sunday to open God's Word, to learn together, uh, to worship together. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Uh, the text was read earlier, and uh, so we'll just jump right in. Uh, on May 2nd, 2011, I was at an Air Force Reserve Chaplain's Conference in Denver, Colorado. And in the middle of a session, someone abruptly interrupted uh, the room to announce that a Special Forces team had just killed Osama bin Laden. Uh, The room responded with applause and cheering, except for two men. Two men sat silent in the room and did not react at all to the news. One of them was an Islamic imam. The other was a mentor of mine a wise Christian pastor named Chaplain Ken Carr. Later, I asked Chaplain Carr if he thought that the imam was sympathetic to Al-Qaeda. He said, no. He said, no, I believe he understands that the death of one of God's image bearers is not something to celebrate. He said, how much more as Christian people, when a wicked person dies without repentance, we should mourn, not celebrate? I felt ashamed that an imam had a better grasp of this than me. His simple silence was something like the example of the Good Samaritan, a man with no gospel knowledge more appropriately responded to a fellow image-bearer's demise than a hundred Christian pastors who were sitting in that same room. Now, a quick word about what I'm not saying. I'm not preaching pacifism. It was right of our government to put an end to bin Laden's warmongering. I wish it would have happened sooner, and I wish it would have been much more effective than it turned out to be. I'm not saying that Islam teaches a better theology of human life than the Bible does. What I am saying is that we, as a society, have become very comfortable with a dangerous misunderstanding of how we should treat one another. We, pro-life, Bible-believing evangelicals, need a much more robust theology of our fellow man than what we typically think about. And Jesus gives us that in this text. In the previous paragraph, Jesus left no room for doubt that he upholds the authority of Scripture. Verse 17 makes that very clear. He says there, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When he says that he came to fulfill the scriptures, he's saying two things. First, he's saying that the scriptures point to him. Every prophet, every priest, every king in the Old Testament is an incomplete picture of his perfect ministry. Second, while you and I obey the scriptures partially, Jesus obeyed them fully. And full obedience is the standard. In their day, the Pharisees had the corner on obedience They modeled obedience from their dress to their tithing to their liturgy. And Jesus says, That's not enough. In verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. And then he gives us six examples of what true righteousness looks like. He says, You've heard it said you should not murder, you have heard it said you should not commit adultery. You have heard it said, do not swear falsely. And then after each of those, he'll say, but I say to you. And each time he drives home the point that God had said thousands of years ago, man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. Adultery begins with lustful desire. Dishonesty begins with self-justification. In our text today, he peels open the chest of a murderer to reveal what is at the heart of every single one of us in this room. And he says, I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, murder begins with anger. Our aim this morning is to get to the heart of this matter, to not just understand the problem, but what to do about it. And to that end, we'll see the heart of fallen man, the heart of the problem, and the heart of Jesus. So if you're bulletin, you can fill in all three points right now. just gave you a sneak peek, but we'll jump in. The heart of fallen man. Before I do, I'm going to pray once again. I thank you, Bubba, for your prayer. I'm going to pray once again just to ask God's direction for us uh, this morning. Father, we are so grateful to open your word. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful that you address this topic. Anger is such a prevalent and constant emotion in our world. Thank you for not being silent about it. Father, help us this morning. Protect us. God, you know my own heart. You know the things that I am angry about. Father, protect this this church from not just hearing my own hobby horse, my pet peeves. Father, let us hear from you what your word says about these things. Lord, speak to us boldly. Speak to us loudly. Let your word be clear. Let it be applicable to our lives. We're grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's see first the heart of fallen man. Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The self-righteous man, the the heart of fallen man is self-righteous. And the self-righteous man evaluates himself by a measurable outward standard, and he interprets Scripture in a way that makes that possible. And again, Jesus is not correcting Scripture. He's correcting what the Pharisees have believed Scripture to say. And now, fair enough, the sixth commandment does say, you shall not murder. But was that God's whole intent to the command? If we think back to Genesis 9, 6, that passage prohibits murder on the basis that man is created in God's image. And on that basis alone, we should understand that the sixth commandment is the bare minimum, not the ideal. If we are fellow image bearers, each of us, God expects more than just to not kill each other. He expects there to be a positive interaction between us. See, the Pharisees had woodenly interpreted scripture in such a way that by meeting the external standard, they'd casted themselves as the spiritual elite. Look at us. We don't kill. And that was the standard. Jesus says, no, you missed the point and you're still dead in your sin. See, here's the standard. Jesus says, you you didn't murder him, but did you slander his reputation? Did you gossip about him? Did you cause other people to doubt his motive, his character? Your fellow man is an image bearer and you portrayed him as something less. So, so think with me, folks, is that entirely different than murder? Dressing someone down, portraying them as less than what God created them to be. Well, the self-righteous person says, of, co- of course it's different. I met the standard. The word says don't kill, I didn't kill. But the person who longs to see, lo- who longs to fulfill the commands of Scripture to the fullest degree agrees with Jesus. There's more here than just the outward act. There's the matter of the heart He gives us these three things, right? He gives us anger, insult, and in this insult, which in the original it says raka. And some of your translations may say that, the word raka. And what that means is empty-headed. It'd be like calling somebody a blockhead or an idiot, right? These are various ways of saying the same thing. They're all ways that we exalt ourselves over our brother, and by so doing, we heap judgment upon ourselves. We make ourselves look better than we are. We make our brother look less than he is. So the self-righteous heart seeks to to justify himself. The self-righteous heart also looks for loopholes that will allow him to maintain the self-delusion of obedience. Look at verse 22 with me again. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother. There's two loopholes in here that people may read in. The first loophole is the phrase without cause. Now, a small handful of, of later Greek texts contain the words without cause. It will say, uh, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother without cause. If you, like I did, grew up with the King James, you're used to hearing it in that way. Uh, Now, most New Testament scholars agree this was probably a later edition. Somewhere along the way, some scribe copying the text said, I don't think Jesus intended to be that severe here. And they added this little loophole for us, if you're angry without cause. The problem is that Look at verses like 29 through 30. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. See, Jesus is being intentionally drastic to show us the shocking contrast between the self-indulgent fallen human heart, in the pure heart of full obedience. With rare exception, that we'll talk about a little bit later, your anger at your brother is never appropriate. He's being severe on purpose. Unless you're angry at your brother, there's no loophole, there's no caveat to say, my anger is justified. It's not. Unless you're angry with your brother. I've heard people fall back on this verse in order to justify all kinds of hatefulness. And they'll say, well, I have cause. I have reason to be angry. It's right for me to be angry. We use the phrase righteous indignation to try to make our anger seem appropriate and even godly. I've done it myself. It's a loophole I've used to maintain my self-delusion of obedience. But it's not actually in the text. A second loophole can be found in Jesus' choice of the word brother. Right? I may be able to justify chanting, let's go, Brandon, because I want to say Joe Biden is not my brother. If you don't understand the reference, the phrase has become a euphemism for an obscene insult against the president, and many Christians are participating in this. But who is my brother? Who would Jesus say is my brother? In Romans 9, 3, Paul says that he wishes he could be cut off from Christ in order for his kinsmen, his brothers, to be saved. Paul would curse himself to an eternal hell for his wayward sinful countrymen. And we giggle while lobbing profane insults at the leader of our country. Shame on us, shame on us. Jesus used the parable of the good Samaritan to teach us who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is the person with whom we are willing to exchange compassion. Perhaps our brother is the person for whom we're willing to be obedient to this text. And so maybe Joe Biden is our brother after all. If you're trying to discern whether or not you have this self-righteousness in this area, I offer you this question. Does your obedience hinge on pursuing God's heart or on escaping God's wrath? If all you want to do is escape God's wrath, then a surface level obedience is enough. The sixth commandment is enough. It says, don't murder. I didn't murder. I'm good. I've done enough. But if you obey as a means to pursue God's heart, you will want to pursue an understanding of his law that best honors his fullest intent. And that's what Jesus did. That's the way Jesus lived. And that's what Jesus means when he says, I came to fulfill the law. And that's what he portrays for us here. So let us see, secondly, the heart of the problem. A few weeks ago, Jason asked me to lead the prayer of confession for the sin of hate. And I'll be honest with you guys, writing that prayer felt like Dorian Gray gazing upon his portrait. I have a lot more anger than I care to admit. And what I've come to learn is that when I feel this anger towards my brother... I am believing any combination of four lies. And I think at times you believe these things as well. So lie number one, we believe the object of our anger is less than an image bearer of God. Now I had prepared a slide I was gonna show here, but for some reason it wouldn't work and maybe it was gonna be more distracting than helpful. I had about 15 pictures of controversial people. I was gonna have it up on screen. And encourage everyone to look at those people and, and consider what emotions stirred up in their heart. And uh, it's likely that that would have just derailed the entire train of thought. Um, and God said, No, technology's not gonna allow you to share that slide with Cliff. So, so here we are. But just imagine the, pe- the person um, who do you feel angry towards? What, what riles your anger? Well, what brings these emotions out of you? The person who cut you off in traffic the person whose political agenda is contrary to your own, the person who shares some of your political values but whose behavior is destructive, the person who treats you with disrespect, the person who annoys you. See, we believe, we tell ourselves that this person is less than an image bearer of God. And we believe that for long enough to say very destructive things about this person. Look with me at the book of James, chapter three. James chapter three, verse six. And keep your finger here. We'll be back in James here in just a couple minutes. But James chapter 3, verse 6, it says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue, It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The only reason I can justify speaking or thinking about some people the way I do is because I allow myself to believe, at least for a moment, that they are less than an image bearer of the Almighty God. And when I do so, I reveal that much of my carnal nature is still very much alive and well within me. The second lie that we believe is that we believe our own sin is less offensive than the sin of others. We believe our own sin is less offensive than the sin of others. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul reveals his own struggle, his own heart. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you relate to that? to Paul's words there, if you're honest with yourself, if you look at your heart, if you look at the things you do that you don't want to do, those outbursts, those thoughts, those distractions, and you tell yourself, I'm not going to do that again, and then you find yourself just a few days later doing that again, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. But we want to tell ourselves, I am less sinful than the person I'm angry with. We want to tell ourselves that we're okay. The the next passage in Matthew, the the next portion that we're going to see in our study in Matthew, tells us that lustful thoughts are equal to adultery. And we say, oh, but I'm a good person. 1 Samuel 15 tells us that a rebellious heart is like witchcraft. We want to say, oh, but I'm a good person. I am better than, I am less sinful than this person I'm angry against. My sin is less offensive than that person's sin. Somehow it's so easy to believe that the guy in D.C. or the guy in traffic is a more heinous sinner than I am, and yet you know your own heart, you know your own struggle, you know your own fallenness, that you fall short of God's glory. There's no way that we can logically justify ourselves as better than other people if we're honest with our own hearts. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, we believe that on Sunday morning, right? We we sit here and we go, yeah, that's true, right? We see it in the text and we go, yeah, that's true. We believe it on Sunday morning. We believe it early morning with a cup of coffee in a quiet house when we're reading God's word. Yeah, that's true. We need to learn how to believe it in traffic and when watching the news and when having Thanksgiving with the in-laws, still true in each of those settings. The third lie is this. We believe we are capable of knowing the secret motives of others. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In context, Jeremiah is speaking about your own heart. It's so deceitful and sick, you don't know your own motive. But we think we can judge the motives of some sales clerk who gave us poor service. You don't know. You don't know what motives, what influences, what circumstances drive people's behavior or informs their choices. How often do we convince ourselves we know the real motive of our brother who offends us or the politician with whom we disagree, or our spouse who does the chores differently than we do. Oh, you did it that way because you know it bugs me. As if we have the omniscience and the omnisapience of the almighty God to see into their heart. Brothers and sisters, we of all people, we of all people, we know the one true God must speak of our fellow man with humi- because we know the one true God, we must speak of our fellow man with humility. We must not allow our anger to lead us to boast things we dare not claim to know. The fourth lie we believe is this. We believe that our bad behavior is necessary to accomplish righteousness. We believe our bad behavior is necessary to accomplish righteousness. A few weeks ago, I took my boys to see a movie. We bought the tickets online. and The ticket lady said we had the wrong tickets and wouldn't let us in. I thought that was ridiculous. I felt myself becoming angry. We exchanged some words. My oldest son was researching the tickets on his phone and interrupted to let me know that she was right. We were at the wrong theater. It was humiliating because of my behavior. Later, he was telling the story to Rebecca, and I, I asked, was I really that bad? And he kind of stammered, and he said, you, you did your thing. <laughs> and it's funny, and I want to laugh at it, but it, it's not funny, is it? It's really not. You see, my thing is this. When I get angry, I just mow people over. Right? I find... I find some chink in the armor, and I just poke it, and I poke it, and I poke it until I win. And then I want to feel good about myself, but I don't. Because that's an image bearer, and I don't know their motive. And my sin is at least as bad as theirs. And I tell myself, I believe in that moment that what I'm trying to get is so important that it's okay to behave this way, right? Well, my, my goal, my objective, what I'm trying to accomplish is necessary, and so it's okay to behave in this way to get what is so important. And sometimes it's big things, right? Sometimes you're trying to accomplish something that truly matters, but it's usually over something like movie tickets, Or my placement in the line at the turning line in order to catch the next light. Or because I think that somehow my indignation is going to change the course of Washington. If I hurl just one more insult on Facebook. I allow myself to believe that my perception of justice is so important that my Christian conduct is secondary to the outcome. So my thing... Is my sinful flesh betraying Jesus like Peter? Because in those moments, I don't know him. I only know what I want. And it's not Jesus. Have you been there? Is this your struggle too? I think it is. So someone right now is thinking, hey, hey, that's true. I get that. But what about Jesus chasing the money changers out of the temple? Isn't there a place to be angry and aggressive, right? Is the, the type A dominant personality, is that a bad thing? It's not about personality. It's not about type A or type B. It's not about being aggressive or accomplishing a goal. Not at all. It's about how we treat people. It's about how we view our fellow image bearer. It's about how we portray them and how we think about them. So what about Jesus? That's a fair question, right? Jesus braided a whip and walked into the temple and flipped over tables and struck people. So what about that? I saw a meme. It was fantastic. And I would have put it on screen, but apparently I don't know how to do that. So it said this, whenever someone asks what would Jesus do, remind them that flipping over tables and hitting people with a rip, whip is within the realm of possibilities. Love it, that's hilarious. The problem is, is this, the previous three false beliefs we just talked about are not true about Jesus, right? As, his, as, as fellow image bearers, we are on equal footing with each other, We're not on equal footing with Jesus. We are image bearers of him. So when he looks and sees a a distorted image, he has the authority to correct that. You and I don't. Jesus has no sin. My sin is an offense to him before and above is an offense to anyone else. My sin cost him his life. He alone has the authority to be angry over my sin and your sin. I don't have the authority to be angry at your sin because mine is just as bad, probably worse. Jesus knows the thoughts and intents of men's hearts. Matthew 12, 25, Mark 2, 8, and eleven seventeen. These are just a few places that say something like, but Jesus knew their hearts. You and I can't do that. Jesus does. We do not have the authority to behave the way Jesus behaves. What about Ephesians 4.26? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Go ahead and look at that text, actually, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, because we need to keep reading. If we're going to take that verse, we need to get it in its context. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath anger. I would encourage you, keep reading. Verse 27, give no opportunity for the devil. The text says this, your anger is a foothold for evil. You are going to get angry. Scripture's honest about that. It will happen. When it does, be aware, be alarmed. That is a foothold for evil. Don't make excuses for it. Don't try to justify it and say, no, no, my anger is good. My anger is necessary. That's a foothold for evil. Deal with it quickly. That's the admonition here. Don't let the sun set on that. Deal with it quickly. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for what? Building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. When I'm doing my thing, I'm not giving grace to the listener to the object of my anger or those around me. Give grace. Don't tear down, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Your anger, when you act in that rage, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit cares how you speak about other people. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath... And anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. verse 26 acknowledges the reality of the emotion of anger it will happen and when it does we are admonished deal with it quickly in order to avoid an opportunity for sin and in the process be very careful to not harm one another be kind be tender hearted let's go back to james james chapter 1 we're going to look at just a couple verses there verse 19 Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't say sometimes, it doesn't say might, it doesn't say may, it says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we want to say, but but if I don't defend myself, my boss or my spouse or my neighbor or the ticket lady will walk all over me. Folks, is God so weak that we can't take him at his word? He says, don't be angry with your brother, but we're going to question him out of fear of not getting our way. And we say, but if I don't stand up against these politicians, they'll take my freedoms away. And there's certainly room for political action in the life of the Christian. But friend, hear me. Your nasty memes and insulting jokes are not going to be what saves the republic from tyranny. They're not. And if that's what it takes, Scripture says it's not worth it. Stop it. And I say this as a man who raised my hand. That's my full-time job is defending the country from tyranny. Okay? And if we have to lose our Christ-likeness to achieve it, it's not worth it. Be obedient above all. Be obedient to the heart of Christ. So how do we repent of this? Here in James, verse 20, the next verse then says, Therefore, right? Therefore, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Put away the filthiness. Maybe you need to remove certain influences from your life, like your news source or your social media or conversations with people that stir it up within you. Put away the filthiness. Right? We think of filthiness as bad language and bad scenes on TV, and that's true, but it's more than just that. It's anything that pulls us away from Jesus. Verse 22 then, put into action the things you have learned. It says this, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. In the verse 23, serve others. If anyone is a hearer of the word, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but forgets uh, who he is, he will be... I'm sorry, I'm I'm messing up the words here. I need my glasses on, but I don't have them. The law of liberty. um, You get the point, right? Follow through. You get the word, do what it tells you to do. Follow through with it. Don't just look at it and walk away, forgetting who you are. And then serve others. Verse 27, religion is pure and undefiled before God is this, visit the orphans and the widows in their, affliction. in their affliction. Keep oneself unstained from the world. This brings us to our final point, which is this, the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus. We're going to see three truths here back in our text in Matthew chapter 5. First truth is this, the heart of Jesus pursues the estranged. Look at verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Here Jesus flips the script. He changes the focus from our anger to addressing our behavior that may have angered someone else. And why is that? Because their standing with Jesus should be important to us as well. He says, if you remember, your brother has something against you, not not your anger, your brother's anger. If you've had an interaction and it didn't end well and your brother's angry with you or you've mistreated him in some way and you know he's upset with you, go deal with that for his benefit, not just yours, for, for his benefit. Their standing with Jesus should be important to us as well. Notice the text does not address the rightness or wrongness of your actions that led to the offense. You may be right, and yet your brother is angry with you. It doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. What matters is that there's this opportunity for evil. There's this anger. There's this rift in the relationship. Go restore it. Go deal with that. And there's plenty of what-ifs here, right? Some of them are legitimate questions. What if my brother won't talk to me? What if I was the bad driver, and I have no idea who my brother is, only what he drives and that he's sped away angrily? when I cut them off at the light, right? What, what, what can you do about that? What if I've been vulnerable with this person before and it's a harmful relationship and I'm afraid to go back to them and be, be vulnerable? These are legitimate questions that we may ask about these relationships. Romans 12 is helpful here. Go ahead and turn over there. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you. That's the key phrase. So far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So sure, there are some scenarios we find ourselves in. You may not be able to fix it, but the the burden is this. As much as it depends on you, be at peace. Be at peace with all people. Don't let yourself be the cause of the offense. So the heart of Jesus pursues the estranged. Secondly, the heart of Jesus desires obedience before performance. Verse 23 again, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled and then come offer your gifts. 1 Peter 3, 7 tells us that husbands tells husbands to honor our wives so that our prayers are not hindered. This principle is not exclusive to husbands in marriage. Rather, Peter is making a focused application of a universal truth. A broken, horizontal relationship will have vertical implications. If there's a rift between you and another person, especially another believer, your prayers will be hindered. Your relationship with God will suffer. And Jesus is urging us here, go rectify that relationship, go restore, go confess, go work through these things so that your relationship with God can be well. In Hosea, God's people are involved in all kinds of ungodly relationships. And in chapter six, verse six, God says, "I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings." He says, "Go restore relationships." When we walk around with malice toward our brother, believing lies we've told ourselves about how important we are and how unimportant he is, and then we show up to sing and pray and commune together, God says, go. Go, show mercy to your brother, then come back and sing about my mercy. Restore the relationship. And thirdly, the heart of Jesus purchases freedom from sin. The heart of Jesus purchases freedom from sin. In verses 25 through 26, Jesus moves to an illustration from the legal world. Look at these verses. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, in those days, if you defaulted on a loan, you could be thrown into the debtor's prison until the loan was repaid. The thought was that the expectation is that your family would care enough about you to pay off your debt in order to get you out. Hopefully, that would be true if you ended up there. Jesus says anger is like debt. If you harbor it, you'll eventually become enslaved to it. You won't escape that prison until you've paid your debt. Now, when is it easier to pay your debt? Before you're in prison or after? Before, right? So he says, settle quickly with your accuser. On your way to court, go, hey, let's just work this out. Right? Let's work this out. And so if there's anger, if there's a a broken relationship, Jesus' admonition here is restore that. Restore it. Now, don't let anger take hold of you. Don't let it grapple. Don't let it take hold of your heart and take you captive. Jesus vividly models this for us. With his arms outstretched on the cross, he looked upon those who put him there. And you remember his words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't remember where I read it, but I read somewhere that in the Old Testament, you never find a prophet who prays for God's, God's grace or God's um for God's wrath to be stayed upon a people and God not follow through with that. Every time a prophet prays for God's mercy, God gives his mercy, every time. There are a few times that God tells a prophet, stop praying, Jeremiah, Isaiah, stop praying because he's intent he's gonna bring his wrath. And what that tells us is that when Jesus was on the cross and he prays, Father, forgive them, there's a very good chance we're going to see those men in heaven one day. Think about that. He wasn't just expressing a wish. Jesus was the ultimate prophet, the greatest prophet. When he says, Father, forgive them, that's effectual. We will probably see those men in heaven one day, the ones who nailed him to the cross. If he could do that, can't we extend grace? Can we not extend forgiveness? Can we not get past our anger with our fellow man? We fail in this area. And when we do, we look back to this example, the example of Jesus. He wasn't merely modeling forgiveness. On the cross, he was purchasing your forgiveness from all sin, even for your sin of not forgiving. What amazing grace is that? The very thing he's doing, what we're guilty of, of not doing. And he says, I'm, I'm purchasing your freedom, your salvation from that sin. What grace, what mercy. So let me wrap this up. When I looked at myself in the mirror this morning, I had circles under my eyes. I had creases on my face from the pillow. I hadn't shaved since Wednesday, and my hair was smashed weird on the side of my head. Anybody else? Is that just me? Anybody else show of hands? No? Okay. That, okay. Oh, cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it, it took some work to look as good as I do now. Let me just say that. God's Word is a mirror, right? And it reveals to us not what we want to see, but what is. And when we look at it and open it up and, and, and dig deep, we see what is. But God's Word is also soap and a towel and a comb and a razor, and it gives us all the resources we need to respond properly to what it reveals. And so I leave you with this story. Peter was right. Peter was right. Jesus was being unjustly accused and arrested. And so he did what carnal men do. He brandished a sword And he went to defend the king of kings as if the king needed defending. And you know what happened. The only way I can figure that he took off an ear is that he was going for a neck and the guy ducked. Maybe I'm wrong. That's what I'm thinking. The soldier was wrong. Peter was right. The soldier should not have been arresting Jesus that night. But Peter was the one that Jesus had earlier called Satan for this very kind of behavior, this very heart. Peter acted in his flesh, and he damaged his fellow image bearer. He pulled a sword, and he went. He found a chink in the armor, and he poked until he thought he was going to get what he wanted. We hurt people in our unrighteousness, our self-righteousness. When we walk around thinking something we are not, thinking we know things we can't know, thinking we are less offensive than we are, we hurt people, God's people, God's image bearers. We betray the love of Jesus and how we defend his principles in this fallen world. We think that because we are right, the sword needs to come out. You remember what Jesus did? He healed the damage Peter had leveraged in his name. How awesome is that? You may be sitting here thinking, yeah, I'm angry. Yeah, I have outbursts. Yeah, I hurt people with my words and my actions when I allow these things to well up within me. Jesus can come behind and restore the damage that we leave behind. Take hope in that. Don't lean on it like a crutch to keep doing what you're doing, right? But take hope in that. Jesus restores. That's the promise that goes all the way back to the book of Joel. God restores what the locusts have eaten. You took off some ears, Jesus can put them back. You've done some damage in your anger. You've hurt some people. You've humiliated yourself. You've betrayed the love of Jesus. He can restore. He can heal. He can correct what you've done. That's the grace of of our God. That's the love of Christ. That's the power of the gospel. And if you'd like help with that, if you're thinking, hey, I I need to talk to somebody about this. There'll be people at the white flag who would love to help you experience this kind of grace as we close the service this morning. You may need to share some of these things. These may be new concepts. You may be a visitor this morning and you don't know this Jesus we're talking about. I invite you, come in here. Come and receive the grace that we've received. None of us are here. I'm not up here because I've got it figured out. I'm a fellow struggler, right? I have confessed my sin to you this morning. Uh, this, is, this is a struggle. It's a journey. Jesus wants to walk it with you. So come and respond to his grace this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll be wrapping it up. Lord, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your patience. God, we confess the sin of impatience this morning. Thank you that you're patient with us. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you forgive us of even being unforgiving. Thank you that you've modeled for us how to how to forgive those who harm us. So Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name we pray.